Radio Drone. Another episode of Radio Drome. Unfortunately, Brad can't be with us due to his moving. His Wi-Fi is wonky at the moment. So I have got Alex. Sorry, Suede Alex. Better be sorry. And I also have Fred. What nickname did they give you, Fritz? Uh, so far, a lot of them as far as uh, like SOB, A-hole. Uh... <laughs> are, are, are we going to be tapping on the glass to get the monkeys no, riled up no, again tonight? No, I think it's best to ignore them. That's, that's, uh, that's even better. Well, before we go into tonight's topic, <laughs> go to adamandeve.com. Use the promo code DROME to get three free DVDs, 50% off of a single item, a free mystery gift, and free shipping in the United States, all for using the promo code DROME at adamandeve.com. I was looking at some of the upcoming movies for 2013. Almost everything is a sequel, and remake, or an adaptation of something else. So tonight I want to talk about adaptations. Whether you're when, And it doesn't just have to be movies. It can be when you're moving from one medium to another why certain changes need to get made, why certain changes shouldn't get made but do anyway, and why do most adaptations fail in some way from the original? The real issue is obviously the most common sense one, and that is that you're talking about taking one person's ideas and they're being interpreted by another person. Now, we know that, like, say, just to use an example of books, for instance, when you adapt a book to, an, to a movie you have to make certain changes. I mean, it's sometimes, for instance, a book could be written entirely in a character's head and you can't translate that perfectly well. You can still have the thoughts of the character being said in the movie, but you still have to visualize it. And so that's mainly the biggest issue is that you're just taking someone's interpretation. A lot of times, they, I think they overthink it. I really do. I think that they just, oh, audiences will hate that and audiences will hate that. And it just makes you wonder why they bothered adapting it in the first place. Well, the other big thing is it's a completely different medium, say, from, like, a novel to a movie. A novel has a story structure that can be no structure, and you can do it. You, you can do whatever you want in a novel, basically. But with a film, there is a specific structure for a film to work. I mean, a lot of times you get success working outside that structure, but generally there's a three-act structure that novels don't conform to. Something Fred said actually got me thinking, what about when when they do, and a lot of movies don't do this, but when they go the Dune route, and I'm not talking about how not close of an adaptation that was, but about taking all the internal monologue and just verbalizing it inside the various characters' heads. You don't see that very often. You see what I consider a much weaker version. We need to find some way to have the characters talk about this information rather than just have the character think of it. Do you remember the movie The General's Daughter? That movie, a lot of the a lot of the dialogue that John Travolta has in that, where he's figuring out the plot and whatnot, that was actually internal monologue in the book. But they had to find some way to get him to communicate that to other people, I guess, instead of having him audibly thinking these things. Why do you think they don't go the Dune route of just having the character's thoughts pop in in a slightly different vocalization so you can tell that okay they're thinking this not speaking it well they they do do it though sometimes so i mean that's the part that's getting me is i mean you you don't see it as often like like in the general's daughter example but detective stories did traditionally do that in the movies they would often have you hear the thoughts of the detective could you give us maybe a specific example of where it should have been used i i can't think of general's daughter so you have another one 
especially I've seen this a lot in like Clive Barker adaptations. Clive Barker has a lot of the motivations and the reasons that his characters do something explained just in the normal the normal writing process. But then when you see it adapted to the screen, even when it's by Barker himself, you see them having to explain to a character, oh, see, you know, this is why this happened to me as a kid. That's why I'm a monster hunter today. Instead of us actually seeing the thing that happened as, as a kid, it just, it seems like a weakest, it seems like you're kind of doing the show don't tell, but backwards. Does that make sense? Yeah, because you should show don't tell. Novels don't have to show don't tell. So it's kind of hard to make that transition to how do we show this instead of telling it like the novel did. Right. Yeah. I, because I they know if they just tell, it's going to bore people. Right. Well, and it could also be budgetary reasons, too. We can't eliminate that factor. I mean, sometimes you have X amount of dollars and you spend them on the big set pieces and then you realize, OK, that's it. Why do you think then sometimes why do you mm-hmm. think an adaptation from a book to a movie gets screwed up more often than it doesn't? For instance, I have not seen The Hunger Games. I have not read The Hunger Games. The most common complaint against my friends who have read the book is the movie leaves out every single bit of the socio-political commentary that was in the book, kind of oh. eliminating the whole point of The Hunger Games. Oh, the the huge reason why is because they were going for that PG-13. There's a lot in that book that would not conform to a PG-13 rating. Okay, that's 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 what I'm looking for. Is and, having not read it, I did not know that, but I just keep hearing complaint after complaint that they left out all this really awesome stuff that would have made the movie better. And they went to make a movie that would entertain teenagers and a lot of socio-political commentary. Unless you're sitting there reading the book, is going to go over a kid's head in a movie. I would I would definitely agree. Plus, uh, there's also the element that they would be afraid that it would uh, perhaps offend certain groups or. Uh, organizations, which is something they've done lots of times when adapting books into movies. They'll leave, they'll change a name or they'll change this group or, you know, just for fear of backlash. You, you've got sort of the same thing. They've been trying to make William Gibson's Neuromancer for years now. That's one of those development hell movies. And mm-hmm. I absolutely love the book. In the book, the, the character's name is Case. Every script that they have had for this Neuromancer movie changes his name to Cage for seemingly no reason whatsoever. That's one of those little why. Why is that changed? Why can you not leave the character's name the way it is? Now, this, I'm, I'm going to, because you're asking a question we can't answer without talking to the people who've done it. No, I'm just asking uh, you kind of like I, your opinion of why you think, would the audience not accept a character named Cage, but they would Case? It's, it's, I, heard, I heard there was a legal concept behind this, that there was an actual uh, – and, and again, I have to be vague here because I, I can't prove any of this. This is just one of those – like when we talked about Alan Smithy, for instance, and it actually – the name started for other reasons than it exists today. It, it, sometimes changing the name of the character allows for legal loopholes to exist. Oh, this isn't the guy from the book exactly. This is a variation. That's why it's something that – if they wanted to, they could use for a legal loophole. That is what I've been told is one of the reasons that it's done. Because a lot of times you can get away with a legal loophole with changing the name. Or to avoid people saying, that's not at all what Cage would do. Well, that's because it's not Cage. It's Cage. Exactly. Exactly. Well, then what about something dipping into TV TV and movies a little bit? Something like Out of Sight to the Karen Sisko TV series. 
whereas I've read the book Out of Sight by Elmore Leonard. The movie is okay. It, you know, it, it does adapt parts well, and it leaves out real key scenes, I think, for ratings reasons, like that Alex alluded to earlier with the Hunger Games, that there's ratings reasons, like that, that the whole Tranny Massacre was left out and things, even though it's a key character moment. But the character of Karen Sisko, the way Jennifer Lopez played her is not the way she is in the book. On the other hand, the way Carla Gugino played the character in the Karen Sisko TV series is almost dead on to the way Elmore Leonard wrote her in the book. So why do you think they, they each took that different approach? Do you think that was Jennifer Lopez saying, no, I think the character should do this and Steven Soderbergh caving? Or do you think it was Soderbergh saying, no, 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 man, we need the character played like this. I don't care how she was in the book. It's a mixture of both, of just Lopez and Soderbergh saying, let's do the character this way. I would actually just argue that it's it falls down to the same thing we see every single year, that at the time Jennifer Lopez was cast, she was hot at that time. She was very hot. And so when they cast her, they were casting an, a, a star, not necessarily an actress. And so you get her baggage instead of someone that can be molded into a character. Okay, I, I, I guess uh, the same could be said about the that 1995 Judge Dredd atrocity. Sylvester Stallone clearly didn't want to play Judge Dredd. He wanted to play Sylvester Stallone playing Judge Dredd, right? Oh, most definitely. Yeah, yeah. It was mostly a vanity project because it was just Stallone being Stallone with the law. But, Which is too bad because he could have done it. I, I mean, think yeah, he, physically, he I, physically I think he was not wrong for the part. I think his ego kept getting in the way of them making that a good movie. Well, there was Rob Schneider. Which was also pushed by Stallone. He's the one that brought Schneider in there. He thought the movie needed humor. And which, they cast which, Schneider for that? Yeah, which if, if he thought that, he's never read the comic books because there's tons of humor in the comics that are not goofy slapstick Rob Schneider kind of thing. And I if guess... he thought that, then he obviously doesn't know what humor is if he's casting Rob Schneider. Well, I guess Toons the Driving Cat wasn't available at the time. Now, this is not coming from an, a book source, but he, when even the creator kind of changes his mind, let's look at Joss Whedon, and I'm not going to go on a rant about it, because let's look at Joss Whedon and Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the movie versus the TV show. He wrote the movie, he, he produced the movie, and he was behind the movie as this is the story I wanted to tell until the critics started savaging it. Then he said, no, 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 okay, they changed this, they changed that. Then he made the pilot for the TV series and said, this is what I always meant the movie to be. Is that backpedaling? Is that changing your mind? Or is that just kind of, uh, it seemed like a good idea at the time? That is a good, uh, I would say backpedaling if he was supporting it the whole time. I mean, because if he was producing, he obviously saw the final cut before the critics did. Plus, I would have to say that if you just really look at the overall tone of the movie, I mean everything, okay, just the whole structure, I would say that, yeah, I think this is a clear case of backpedaling. The movie fits perfectly with the tone of other films that were around at that time. Yeah. And there doesn't appear to be any hidden social context. I honestly think he just wrote something and then later on said, hey, you know what, this makes a great analogy for, or maybe even heard someone say it did. And then that's what inspired what he did on the show. But yeah, no, I, I, is, yeah, I wouldn't say there's any room for it in there. There is a world of difference between the movie and then the TV series. I mean, yes. they're 
not only like a decade apart, but they do, like you said, the movie played into what was popular at that time, what was going on with movies. The pilot of the TV series and the TV series in general plays into what was popular at that time. But then do you think that's what normally happens when you, say, take a, a movie to a TV series? Do you think it's, well, we saw what didn't work in the movie, so we're changing it? Like with Karen Sisko, where they said the Karen Sisko character is not quite clicking the way she did in the book, but we can make that work in the TV show? Or do you think that they just get a better idea that, hey, maybe this would work even better? Or is it just, we don't care at all, like the whole Ferris Bueller, the TV series, and all those ones from the 80s that that had, you know, five episodes before they were canceled, such as, I'm sure you guys have seen the movie Gung Ho, right, with Michael Keaton? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Did you know that had a TV series? Yes. Oh. It was terrible. Yeah, it was was god-awful. So why does that, the norm, that when you take a movie and make it into a TV show, does it generally not work? Well, because generally, I mean, out of sight would be an exception because that obviously seems like somebody else came on board with a different view of the novel than the movie had. But generally, when you're taking a movie to a TV series, it's because, hey, this is popular. We can make some money with some episodes of this on TV. It's just out there to make money. People will watch it. If it gets canceled after two or three episodes, whatever, they still made enough money. And also, I think that you have to, and this is actually tying directly into what Alex is saying, that you have to look at television as two different entities, really. You have the the production, the, the producer end of it, the individual saying, I wonder what would sell, and then you have the creator portion of it. And creators are shopping around ideas all the time, such as Sarah Connor, Connor, Sarah Connor Chronicles is a great example of this, that someone had, you know, this idea for this, you know, to take Terminator in a different direction. They obviously, you know, whisper Terminator into a producer's ear. Hey, the kids like killer robots. Let's make a TV series out of it. And so what you have is you have one view of it going, hey, this will tie into the movies and we'll make money. Whereas the other end is saying, I'm actually going to write stories. I'm going to have motivation. I'm, go-. you know, what I mean, it's it's a compl- it's two different animals. And sometimes when it succeeds, it's only because they're in alignment. Bringing up Terminator, the Terminator, the Sarah Connor Chronicles. I thought that did it right, and I thought they did a very, very smart thing with that show, and that was going out of their way to knock Terminator 3 and Salvation out of continuity. Well, that, Salvation hadn't happened. Yeah, come Salvation out yet. Hadn't But Salvation happened. was in pre production, so right. they were, and since Salvation's a direct sequel to 3, t- the TV series was basically saying those movies don't exist. This is just a sequel to Terminator 2. And I thought that was a very wise move since Terminator 3, not only is it a piece of crap, but most people know that it's a piece of crap. It was a well-written show. That's that's all I would say, really, just well-written show. But then how about when you go the opposite? How about when you take a TV series and bring it to a, into a movie? Do you think when you've got all these goofy ones that the late 90s, early 2000s had – like Starsky and Hutch and Bewitched and all that, do you think that's good to kind of, we're not going to play it straight, we're going to, hey, goof it up because the series is thought of as goofy in pop culture, right? Or to go the more Miami Vice route and go, no, we're going hard goddamn R and we're taking this in a serious direction. Do you, Which do you think works better? Well, again, so, both of them are just cashing in on the title. Well, yeah, and also, see, here's the thing. Again, you're talking about the creation of something. I mean, in the, I guess first, first of all, the problem was as far as the why they're not treated seriously is the Brady Bunch movie 
was one of the earliest to do this and be successful. And because Brady Bunch had done this wink, wink at the audience, you know, we're, we're you know, you know, we're not being serious because we know we're not being serious. The thing is, is that when, when other productions came out, they sort of missed what Brady Bunch did right. And that was they didn't make us like hate or dislike the Brady characters. They were actually still the heroes of the piece. You know what I mean? Even though, yeah, they were outsiders and weird compared to the rest of the world around them. That was the joke. You still cared about them. Whereas other stories, when they came out, the whole thing was, let's mock this thing. Beverly Hillbillies. Let's tear it, yeah, let's tear it apart, let's tear it down, let's make them, let, let, you know, because we're above it now. Oh, look how stupid those people were in 1970 or 82 or 91. That's the problem with those, is they're tearing down, therefore it becomes nothing for nobody. Like you were saying with Brady Bunch, it didn't make fun of the characters. It didn't go, oh, look how stupid people were in 1970s. It went, it basically said, look how different people were in 1970s. Right. And, and then you you had other ones that thankfully, after Starsky and Hutch got made, which I thought was an abominable movie. Uh, it, I mean, it basically just said, yeah, the whole series is, the TV series is goofy. So we're just going to be just that goofy. The one that they've been trying to make for years is Cagney and Lacey. And they wanted to do it in that Starsky and Hutch style. Cagney and Lacey was very strong-willed. This is still kind of in the, the woman's lib movement and women trying to get equal rights doing their jobs. The script that's been floating around for years is they're man-hating dykes. I and, know. And, and, that, and, that, and that is the joke of the whole movie is they're man-hating dykes, and that's what Cagney and Lacey is. And, and that just shows... Not only no respect, but almost anti-respect. You're actually just going, we hate the original show. That's why we're making this movie. And you can't even get a full movie out of a concept like that. Two man-hating dyke cops. Okay, and? But that's the script. Or, or like <laughs> that that thankfully never made Jim Carrey $6 million man movie that's been floating around forever that was basically Inspector Gadget. This was like early 2000s. Like in 2002, $6 million doesn't buy what it used to, so none of his equipment works anymore. And they outright said it's a slapstick comedy. That's not what the $6 million man was, though. But see, that's just it. They become – these are projects that are – that's they're for nobody in the end. If you love the original, you're not going to like these. And if you're too young to even know them – then there's going to really be no appeal or understanding. It becomes more like one of those bad skits on SNL, you know, sort of like a MacGruber, where it's like, okay, you can do a single joke out of it, but it just does not make for a good movie. It just doesn't. Yeah, and as far as TV to movie adaptations, there's rarely been a decent one of an SNL sketch. I can't, yeah. I can't think of a single one other than Wayne's World. Well, I, can I give an I just heard this the other night, and I've actually always agreed with this, too. It's sort of like if you look at the movie Airplane. Airplane is a movie that is a parody of an entire genre. Okay? It's, yeah. It's, Specifically it's Airport 77, but yes, an entire genre. Well, that's what I'm saying. It's, it's of a genre. It does target one movie in particular, but it, it's, it's of an entire genre. But if the movie was only that... If it was only that, it would not be the classic it is today. That's merely the framework, and you have to actually write other types of jokes in there. You you actually have to write jokes that appeal on different levels. It's sort of the uh, the idea of throwing at the wall something at the wall and seeing what sticks. There, there's more types of humor than just the parody. There's parody. There's satire. There's wordplay. 
it, it, there's some slapstick. I mean, there's a little bit of everything in that movie. You know, there's a scene Robert uh, Stack is driving. Uh, they just picked him up, and he's with the the intern, and they're driving down the street, and you, you hear a and a bicycle goes flying off the you know in the back window, and you know, a guy screaming. That has nothing to do with any of the airport movies, but it's a great joke. And that's the point is today's films, they take one idea and they try to stretch it into an entire movie. And you can't do that. You have to actually fill it with something. Right. And to, to me, like Airplane, the writing rose above almost what they were trying to do. Well, it becomes its own thing. Yeah. And, I, I you know, they almost invented a genre there. If Attack of the Killer Tomatoes hadn't come out a year earlier, they would have invented a new genre. It again, it just falls down to you have to be a joke writer, you know. Uh, John Hughes used to say something like that too when he was in high school. He challenged himself to write a joke a day, every day, whether they were good or bad. And so when he writes his scripts, he takes that same mentality, or when he wrote his scripts, excuse me, past tense, he took that mentality for his stories and. There is kind of a diversity to his best work, if you really look at it. Okay, then what about one of the most popular types of adaptations we have today that I think gets screwed up more than they don't, and that is comic book to film? Well, now that only gets screwed up in the mind of the fans of the comic, because I don't read comics, and I've had no problem with the recent movies. Except but, for the Batman Dark Knight, the Dark Knight Rises, I didn't care but, much. For but that you're movie. just viewing that as the movie. I'm talking about it as an adaptation. How, whether you accurately or inaccurately take a character, team, setting, scenario, whatever, and transition it to film. One of my big failings, and you guys both know this, is the necessity to constantly tell the character's origin again. Okay, I get it. The Punisher. People might not know his origin. You may need to reiterate that. Fair well, enough. He's, he's not as popular. Batman? Superman? Spider-Man? Okay, Spider-Man, not only does everybody already know it, it was told in the cartoon of the 90s, the cartoon of the 80s, the live-action TV series of the 70s, the Sam Raimi movie, it was told in the new movie. How many times do we need to know Peter Parker gets bit by a radioactive goddamn spider? It's, it's just drilling, it's just telling the same story. Over and over and over and over again. The easiest way they could actually do that, if they want to reboot any superhero franchise without doing the origin story, is start in the middle when he's already a hero saving people. Take care of the origin with a quick flashback and then get back on with your story. Or do it like, uh, or do it like the Dread movie did. There's no origin at all. Yeah, you it's a day in the to, life. Yeah, it's a day in the life, and you get these little bits of his past. Well, I think that the, the the word that we're all ignoring here, that's it's it's one of the key answers to what you're talking about, is the word franchise. Josh and I, we've talked about this both on, I, I think, here on Radiodrome as well as a Race Rewind, that Batman, the Tim Burton Batman, really sort of changed the way movies were made forever. One of the things that these guys consider constantly is like, okay. We need a franchise. How do we keep the same actors? How do you know? Like in a comic book, obviously you can have the same basic character. Okay, it's, it's you're not worrying about who's playing him this week. You know what I mean? It's it's more like who's drawing him currently. In fact, they actually talk about that now. You know, like oh, this was during the to, you know Todd McFarlane period and so on and so forth. That's the problem when they look at like a franchise. They say, oh, okay, we we want an actor to play this character for so long, but Tobey Maguire only stays a teenager. Yeah. <laughs> Or even looking at a teenager for so long. And that's 
the problem right there. And they're not looking at it. The, the origin stories of these characters tends to be the most dramatic. And after that, you have to find the one, you know, the stories that actually really, really work. So it's always kind of curious why they never choose those ones that really, really work. But it's apparent because by the time they get around to it, they're already dealing with another generation of kids. And they figure, hey, the, you know, they don't know it, so we'll just make money off of them. Or you, you, you go the other kind of route where it's the origin is set in a certain part of history. I'm thinking The Punisher. It's key that he is a Vietnam veteran that is shit on when he gets home back to America. That's key. And I'm sorry if this offends people in the military, but what Nam vets went through and what Afghanistan and Iraq vets are going through is not the same thing. You do no, not it's... get the same character traits out of making him an Iraq war veteran than you do making him a Nam veteran. He would I have get different it. character traits. He would be a completely different yeah. character. Right, I wouldn't but, say but... he's better or worse. He would just be different. My point is... The reason that in the Thomas Jane Punisher movie that they made him, uh, I think it was a Desert Storm veteran, instead of a non-veteran was, well, he'd need to be too old. Then don't set it in 2004. There's no, I mean, I have been pushing for a while now for a hard R set on against the backdrop of 42nd Street takes place in 1982 Punisher movie. That would be a true version of Frank Castle. Go watch that short film, Dirty Laundry. I, I have, and I, awesome. I don't think Thomas Jane was miscast. I think Thomas Jane works quite well. I just think the way that character was written was idiotic to make him a Desert Storm veteran because, I'm sorry, what Desert Storm vets went through is not what Nam vets went through. You get totally different character traits, and then and we talked about this a little bit on the on the uh, comic book show. The whole fact that every single time the Punisher gets adapted to the screen. They make him a law enforcement officer of some kind. He was never a cop. He was a non-vet that came home, was getting back into the groove with his family, stumbled upon a mob hit in Central Park, and his family was killed, and he ended up surviving and becoming the Punisher. The Dolph Lundgren movie in 89, he's a police officer. The Thomas Jane movie in 2004, he's an FBI agent. The Punisher Warzone movie, he's a police officer. I don't know why they keep... well. We need to make him an ex-law enforcement somehow. It's just for ease of storytelling and lazy writing. That's what bothers me in an adaptation of, say, The Punisher. Well, that's because of what I've referred to um, on my show as cinematic shorthand. Unfortunately, this is it, it, it's, it was a good thing that's turned into a very bad thing, which is like, let's say you want to bring in, you only have an hour and a half to tell a big story. And you say, oh, I want the audience to know this guy is tough. So we're going to cast Clint Eastwood, okay? And Clint Eastwood obviously brings with him baggage. And you go, oh, okay, so this is probably a tough character. And just showing one or two moments, boom, you've got the idea. That's a good example of cinematic shorthand, like Gran Torino, for instance. Whereas if you do – like now what you have, unfortunately, is, is you have it being misused. And the writers today, they're not basing their writings off of life or even as – you're going by here, the source material. What they're going by is they're sort of cannibalizing every film that's come before it. And they've looked and they say, oh, what is an action hero? Oh, they're generally grizzled ex-cops or FBI agents or, you know, in other words, they're looking not at the source material. They're looking at Die Hard and Lethal Weapon. And 
other movies and they're cannibalizing those as opposed to going to the source material and saying, what does the source material say? That's what Stallone did with the Judge Dredd movie. He, oh, hey, uh, sidekicks. Sidekicks make movies better. You know, they make them more fun. We'll give Judge Dredd a sidekick. We'll, we'll give him a love interest. Fred, and that's not Judge Dredd. You just made me think of something. When you brought up Die Hard, what about the whole Die Hard, John McClane, Frank Sinatra, Bruce Willis thing? That Die Hard is based off of a novel, mm-hmm. but it's the second novel From in a series. Yeah. Which was all, which the first novel had already been adapted in the 60s with Frank Sinatra in the John McClane role, although for legal reasons they changed his name. He wasn't John McClane, but it's the same character. Why do you think they would choose something like, all right, we're gonna, we're gonna take this novel, but we're gonna ignore the first movie and the first novel, and we're gonna basically change everything. All they kept from the novel that Die Hard is based on is the fact that, well, it's a cop slash detective in a tower controlled by, or in a tower type building controlled by terrorists. They changed everything else. So can you really call Die Hard an adaptation? Well, if I can just to answer that, because I'm a big fan of that movie and I know the book, it's not as different as you're implying. The difference comes in that they don't connect it any longer to the, the other. And in this particular case, I don't see it as a bad thing because we were too far removed from the other movie. You can't connect it to the other movie any longer. You could definitely still have an older character, for instance, playing him. You could still call him that same, you know, same name and have him basically the same detective. But I'd have to say, here's an example of making all the right choices. Uh, They made it its own film. That's it. I mean, that's the answer. They just made it its own standalone project because to connect it to the other would simply be silly. I had no clue it was adapted from a book. (laughs) (laughs) So, all right, I I guess you just can't weigh in on this one then, huh? Well, in other words, you'd have to do the detective first, again, to do what you're talking about. In other words, if it was going to be done proper, they'd have to remake the detective first, you know, and cast it, and then have that character reappear, hopefully with the same actor, in that part in, in Die Hard. That would, you know, that would be the logical extension in my opinion that would be what takes it to the proper uh state because it was the book was called nothing lasts forever and so that would be the proper way to do it in the way you're talking about i couldn't remember the title i haven't read it since high school so yeah it was called nothing lasts forever and it, it basically is the character carried over uh joe something and i can't remember his name something ireland or i don't know whatever uh but it, that's how you would do it properly. You would continue it over. Uh, you know, here's a good other example. like Fletch. Fletch would be a great example of this because I adore the Fletch novels. They did the first book and they were pretty faithful to it. You know, it, they changed some things to give it to allow Chevy Chase to be Chevy Chase in it. But they did a pretty good job. And even McDon- uh, Gregory liked it. Gregory McDonald wrote the books. But the second book, a uh, movie, has nothing to do with the books at all. Speaking of that, then, how about something where you have two separate continuities? You've got the movie continuity and then the novels that continue, such as like the Dirty Harry novels. The Dirty Harry novels go in a wildly different direction. They give him a different backstory. They give they're totally a different continuity than the Dirty Harry movies. Do you think that's a wise direction to go in or not? Or just sort of I'm going to or even John Rambo. How there were numerous Rambo books after First Blood 
that had nothing to do with where the Rambo movies ended up going. Well, he died in the book. <laughs> well, yeah, but then they, for whatever reason, he, they had more books. They just ignored the the suicide in the book. Don't ask me <laughs> to explain that one, but it doesn't matter. The point is there were more Rambo books after First Blood, whether it made sense or not. Even going back to what order books are adapted in is that the, the James Bond films, all of them from Dr. No up until Living Daylights were based off of Ian Fleming's novels. And then now Casino Royale is also based off the first James Bond novel because the order of the movies is not the order that the novels are in. I knew that, but I'm not a big Bond fan, so I didn't yeah. know. I didn't know. And a I lot realized of that. that actually when I read the only book of Fleming's I read was From Russia with Love, and at the beginning it's giving the backstory, catching up on what's happened since the last book, and it's talking about plenty's o- plenty O'Toole. And I'm like, wait, that was Diamonds Are Forever. Well, All right, the, then Ian Fleming, by the way, just for the record, those movies differ a lot from the books, though. Oh, a lot, especially the yeah. later ones. Yeah, they they as they went, they pretty much just used the titles. And uh, a good example of what you're talking about, and here's a strange one, Josh, is uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the Tom Selleck series of movies called the Jesse Stone films. I've seen that, previews for them, but I've never actually seen them. I'm a big fan of these, but the last few have been kind of not as good. And the funny thing is, guess what? They're not following the books anymore. I believe uh, Robert Parker died, actually, not too long ago. But uh, he condoned the alterations. He said, okay, go ahead. Do whatever, you know, do what you want to do. I, I think he, and I think, I he, think he did the same thing. With, I think he did the same thing with Spencer for Hire. The, yeah. the, Spen, the Spencer novels are vastly different than the Spencer for Hire TV series, but both were good. They were just different. Yeah, they were different. I think he just realized it's a different medium, it's a different story, and he just accepted it. You know, it's like it didn't change his books. You know what I mean? His books still are his books, and uh, probably just looked at it as a positive that people would just go pick up his books. But then, what happens when you have something like what what Paramount did with Star Trek, specifically the Next Generation, with their books and comic books and video games, where Paramount outright said in 1987 when Next Generation came on the air. We're putting out these comic books, there's new novels, there's a video game, blah, blah, blah. Not a single thing of this is in continuity. The way they actually worded it was, if it doesn't happen on screen, it didn't happen to the characters. Well, it's always been that way. The books aren't canon. Right. Yeah. But is does that kind of take away a little bit of your enjoyment if the first season of Next Generation is really weak? But the first three books are really damn strong, and you you wish that the stronger material was the continuity-based? Well, that goes to the debate of why a lot of people hate the fact that the books aren't canon, because they like the books, and they wish the books were part of canon. And that is a whole debate in itself. Yeah, I was going to say, and plus, if you go by what you're talking about, these these things that are offshoots, which is what they're generally referred to as, they're, they're, they're property to make money. I mean, that's the yeah. only purpose. And if they made them canon, then, of course, you've got to work around that. Um, a lot of TV shows, for instance, change their own canon over time uh, because they find that something said in the first season hinders the storytelling in later seasons. Star like Trek if, The Next Generation is a perfect example. They did that throughout the first three seasons. The yeah. last four seasons contradicted a good chunk of the the, the universe laid out in the first three seasons. Right, because they, sometimes they bring in new writers, or they come up with a, what they think is a superior idea. Whether it is or it isn't, that's up to the viewer. Or uh, they realize but, that they'd written themselves too confining a setting. 
Right. Well, that's it. That's what I mean. They come up with an idea. And, oh, shoot. That guy had kids. Oh, what if we just ignore that? You know, and uh, they did that with a show called Forever Night. And the yeah. partner, uh, Skanky, he yep. had like kids, like like two or three kids. Then he had one kid. Then he had no kids. <laughs> yeah. Homicide, Homicide Life on the Street did that, too. In the pilot episode, they refer to Pembleton having two kids. And he has his first kid in season three. You go, oh, no, you established in the pilot. He had two kids already. They've done that a lot. That that just, I think, is time. A lot of shows, people have to realize when they're created, they're only, you know, they only have a base idea. And they create the uh, show Bible as they go, generally speaking. Very few shows, like say Babylon 5 is one of the exceptions where, you know, he had an entire book of ideas already written out. And right. so that's, and they, unfortunately, even that got changed because of what happened in season four. But uh, that's generally what goes on there. But then what about when you have, like, say, a famous novel or a famous short story adapted even into something just like an anthology series? So you don't have to worry about any kind of continuity, such as – and I understand the budgetary constraints of why, why certain elements were changed. But, like, when Clive Barker's The Yattering and Jack, one of my all-time favorite short stories, was adapted into a Tales from the Dark Side episode – I'm not going to make fun of the special effects or anything because, like I said, I understand the massively low budget they had to work with, but they changed certain story elements seemingly for no reason other than it's easier this way. Is that usually what it is, or or is it that there is some convoluted behind the scenes when you adapt something famous that, that you change for whatever reason, or even something like Watchmen, the ending of the Watchmen movie, which I prefer of the, the movie version, so vastly different, and I think improved from the Watchmen comic book. What do you think is usually the rationale for why we change something that doesn't need to be changed? It's easier. You think it's just filmmaking laziness? I mean, well, they're working on a TV show. They've got a set amount of time. They've got to do it as quick, as cheaply as possible. They're not going to put in their artistic best. To a degree, yeah. I mean, it, it depends. Again, we're talking about so many variables. Like you brought up Watchmen in that, and and sometimes it's just a matter of they're afraid it'll get laughed off the screen. I mean, we know that, especially in the case of comic books, that people are more accepting of things in comic books than they would be in a movie. Okay, you know, movies tend to just we view them in a particular way, and they they play out in, in a sort of sense of real time. Obviously, it's a heightened sense of real time, but it's still basically linear you could see why they didn't want to go with the giant tentacled squid alien it would look silly i mean it would look silly i thought it was silly in but, the comic book too but but the idea though here's the thing though I, I i didn't like the changes made at the end of the movie myself they still could have had an outside threat it just didn't have to be that silly image you know what i mean so sometimes i just think it comes down to that Again, this this new creator, this new author is taking the material and they're just interpreting it. They have an idea and their focus is different than others. It's it's why you see a lot of times a movie comes out and the focus is on something in the book that might have been minor and suddenly is the whole point of the movie. John Dies at the End just came out, for instance, and a lot of people are complaining about the fact that the character of Amy is not bigger in the movie. That's because they adapted only one of the two stories in the book. And John uh, Dies at the End is an absolutely goddamn phenomenal movie, too. Yeah, I haven't read the book. It, but... It's a wonderful movie. I was very enamored with it. Again, having not read the book yet, now I want to go read the books because there's a second book now. 
and I want to go read them. This movie has gotten me excited to read it. But sometimes it's just a matter of adaption, uh, time, or who wrote the material, and it's that simple. Or like and Alex said, sometimes it's just easier. Or, or then how about you brought up who wrote the material? What about when the creator screws up his own project? I'm looking at the Wing Commander movie. That movie was written and directed by the guy that wrote and executive produced the games. How do you screw up your own property that bad when you adapt it? Do you think there's outside sources involved that it's he had no control or the guy really just has no idea what he's doing? Well, not everybody can write a screenplay and not everybody can write a novel and not everybody could write a stage play. I, I think it just comes down to they don't understand the format they're writing for. Again, a very simple, direct Occam's razor kind of answer. As cinematic as video games are, they have generally poorly translated to films. Uwe Boll adaptations aside, I can't think of a single one. I, I might take a lot of crap for this. I thought the first Mortal Kombat actually captured the... I mean, if it weren't PG-13, if it was a little gorier, captured the tone and the characters of the story relatively well. I don't think you'll get that much crap. There's a lot of people out there that share that sentiment. Not me. Th- that one, I hate to, <laughs> I hate to say it, but Mortal Kombat was a relatively accurate adaptation. It really was. I think that for what it was, it's actually a, a fun little movie, and perhaps that's the real uh, answer here. We tend to be more forgiving when what is presented to us is actually somewhat entertaining or good. And we go, okay, it's not exactly like the original, but hey, it's actually pretty good for what it is. And we can tend to be more forgiving of that. Uh, A good example is the Street Fighter movie, which when it came out was hated. It was loathed. Well, no, that's my point. No, it's not, actually. It is now becoming a bit of a cult sensation. And it's actually selling very well. Because this generation doesn't give a crap about the video game. They don't give a crap about where it came from, and they're viewing it as just a comedy, which it actually was intended to be. But that's where they're going. I mean, that's what's happening, is that they're not connected to the source material, so they go, oh, this is kind of good just for what it is. Stupid entertainment. Let, let's, let's go the opposite way, then. Let, let's look at when movies be- get translated to another medium. I'm, I'm not talking about like, like a, a novel adaptation or anything like that. The one I'm really, really thinking of here is the Aliens comic books. They didn't make the first comic book until after the James Cameron Aliens movie came out. And it starred Hicks and Newt, and Ripley was nowhere to be found. That she popped back in later. So the first three miniseries were about Hicks and Newt and their adventures. And that was fine. And 20th Century Fox was all, yes, this is canon, this is canon, this is Hicks and Newt. Then they go and make Alien 3, where Hicks and Newt are dead, right from the start of the movie. So then they had to go and retcon those stories, including the reprints of them, to change their names from Hicks and Newt to Wilkes and Billy, and changing their origins slightly to go, oh, those were not Hicks and Newt at all, that's just different characters now, that we, and it's still canon, but that didn't happen to Hicks and Newt anymore. Is that not just a little insulting, or do you think they made the right move since using the Paramount example, if it didn't happen on screen, it didn't happen? I like the Paramount example of, the books aren't canon. <laughs> wow, uh, this one's hard. Um, I, I guess I'm going to just 
for the sake of this argument, because it's too big and we don't have the time to go into it. I, I'm going to go with side with Alex, just that the short answer is being, yeah, I, I mean, allow the movies to be the movies and the books to be the books. I, I think that in both cases, they've been screwed up. I mean, that's that's my answer. They were they're already screwed up. It's already a mess. And uh, unfortunately, with a lot of stories that could, could be continued a certain way, it just seems like when they change hands or get new writers or new producers or new conceptual artists, they always want to change it and make it their own and instead of just thinking of the audience. So, Why do you guys think that when you adapt a book to a movie, a miniseries, a TV show, whatever, why do you think the changes usually do get made? Do you think it's more on the creative side that we can't do this or more we're kind of pandering to our audience and giving them what they want? I think it's half of that, you know, a bit of the pandering, some of maybe financial, but I think mostly it's a different creative direction. That the director of a movie and the, the screenwriter, they don't have the same brain that the writer of the original material did. They interpret mm-hmm. it a different way. Jaws is a great example. Yeah, all, I mean, all, the, all the mob subplot being missing, Brody's cat being killed is missing, all that stuff. Yeah, it's it's just a matter of they, they streamlined it. And but the movie is fantastic. Do you think that's more hubris on the director? Because one of the things I hate when I, when I see, especially a very good director or a good writer director, when I hear they're doing an adaptation of something, they always have to put their own stamp on it. Instead of just adapting the material, they have to make it Tim Burton esque, or make it J.J. Abrams esque, or make it Joss Whedon esque, or something. I think that's kind of hubris. If you if you have to change it that much that it suits you or tailored to you, then don't adapt it. Come up with something original. If you're going to adapt something, adapt the goddamn thing. If I, I'll tell you this much: that first of all, that comes back down to what, who's producing it as well. I mean, why did you hire Tim Burton? I, I'm going to go against you on this respect: that you don't hire certain directors and not expect them to do what they're best at or known for, if you want. That's just something that goes with it. There are plenty of directors that are guns for hire. We complain about this when contextually we look at it in another way and we say, wow, why didn't they let that director just do what they're good at? So you give them adaption material that's you know, being adapted and then you get angry because they changed it. It really, I guess this really does fall more down to the producers of the project than it does the director ultimately. Because you talked about um, pandering to the audience, for instance. Obviously, if you're going to say, well, we're going to pander to the audience, that's a creative choice that's going to determine every other creative choice down the line, right? So it really falls down to where the thing starts as opposed to where it finishes because where it starts is going to determine every change. If you say we're going to leave – there's three main characters, but you know what? We're going to leave that one character out of the out of the movie that was in the book. Right there, that's going to change the whole outcome. You know, It's the butterfly effect for screenwriting, <laughs> and it's going to change the outcome of everything. So it really starts more at the beginning on a producer level. Because the way I, I, like I said, I look at it as kind of hubris that you don't hire someone like, say, Terry Gilliam to adapt your book if you don't want it to be turned into a Terry Gilliam story. You hire somebody who is good at adapting. That's my problem. But then I'm also, and I'm about to shoot my own argument in the foot, while the horrible Brett Ratner Red Dragon movie is far closer to the novel Red Dragon, Michael Mann's Manhunter is a far, far better movie. 
So I kind of shot my own argument in the foot there, didn't I? Yeah, more or less. Mm-hmm. At least I'm upfront about it. But then again, sometimes the idea, again, that's where you get the idea of interpretation, though. A, a director might have a slightly better approach. The focus may not be on the one thing that the novel focused on more. I mean, the book and the movie are still very similar in certain respects, but the focus is different, and that's the biggest difference. I mean, obviously, stylistically, stylistically, weird, we just said the same way. Yeah, stylistically, obviously, that was just Michael Mann. But then again, there you go with Tim Burton, there you go with Terry Gilliam, there you go with any of these directors that have a particular feel and or style. I mean, look at Christine, another great example. John Carpenter's stamp is on that movie. Okay. Absolutely. You, you, you can't escape John Carpenter. And so when you people say, Oh, I wish it would have been more like the book. They hired John Carpenter. He did what he's good at. You can't ask somebody to go outside of what they know. You can ask them maybe to extend or reach out or try to do more, but you can't tell them to change what they are at their core or what they believe in. And I think that's part of the problem here as well. Well, and I think in the case of Red Dragon, the Red Dragon movie also was a pandering garbage, too, by artificially beefing up Hannibal Lecter's role just to go, hey, look, it's Anthony Hopkins as Hannibal Lecter again. See? 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 Yeah, well, yeah that was that, pandering. That was pandering. It was trying to make money by giving it again. I mean, hell, in all honesty, and I, I haven't read the book since high school of, of Red Dragon, but I actually think Manhunter had more Hannibal Lecter in it than the book did. I mean, he mm-hmm. is really a minor character in the book. He is very minor, and they really play him up in Red Dragon. In fact, the movie opens with him. Yeah. So, yeah. and again, that was changed from how Graham caught Lecter in the book. So even on that regard, it was Brett Ratner trying to go, I'm doing my own thing with this. He wasn't really doing his own thing. Or he was the producers. the studio's thing. Yeah. It's not that, that Brett really Ratner did. wanted more Lecter. It's just that. The studio's like, we want more Lecter because people like him. Canon's Masters of the Universe movie. <laughs> they gave, <laughs> they made that movie for nobody because their target audience was kids and teens. Did yeah. we want to see He-Man fighting police officers or He-Man fighting on Eternia? And I, I get part care. of it was budgetary. Part of it was they couldn't afford to to do all the Eternia sets and the costumes and whatnot. Okay. But, that's not part of it, Josh. Come on, be come on. You know that Canon couldn't afford that movie. I know. And that's what it's, this it's is. It's actually about. the movie that sunk the studio. I, I realize yeah, that. I'm just saying yeah. they couldn't afford it. <laughs> what what I what I mean though is you adapt the cartoon or the toy line, depending on how you want to look at it, and in a way that you knew was never going to make anyone happy. Why do it then? I was seven when that movie came out, and I was happy because He-Man was fighting Skeletor. I didn't give a damn about anything else. Yeah, for three minutes. Uh, He was still in a struggle versus Skeletor. He wasn't wasn't clashing his sword at him for the whole two hours, of course. Well, well, to be fair... (laughs) I was seven. That movie was made for me. This 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 movie was made to make money. We know that. But to be fair, they were planning more than just the one movie. They were hoping if this film was a hit, they were going to make the next movie set on Eternia. They were going to take the excess, you know, the excess money and actually set it in the He-Man's universe. If you think about it, that's kind of smart if it had worked. 
but they went bankrupt. They went belly up. I mean, they want. What do you expect? They wanted to make Star Wars, but they only had the budget to have Luke and Vader fight in front of the Gap at the mall. You know. <laughs> On that note, where can we find Fred? Fred, no nickname yet, Fritz. <laughs> uh, uh, still at uh, www.movieapocalypse.com. Oh, and as well as the address that Alex is about to give. www.geekjuicemedia.com. And I am there as well. And we've got some new people coming. So check out geekjuicemedia.com and you can contact us at 1201beyond at gmail.com. Have a good night, guys. (laughs) 